Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. As we enter the summer season, uh, several of our co-hosts are away in Israel digging and traveling around, so our episodes will be slightly more sporadic, but we wanted to republish an episode from a while back from our Onscript podcast, our other podcast that we run here And since it's related to the world of the Bible and archaeology and history, we thought you'd enjoy it here. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Wave Nunnally. Welcome on Script listeners. Today we have as our guest, Dr. Wave Nunnally, professor of early Judaism and Christian origins at Evangel University in Tennessee and frequent guide for the perplexed to the Holy Land through his company, Bible Unplugged and other organizations as well. Wave, welcome to Onscript. Thank you, Dr. Matt. It's great to be with you guys. Wave, we uh, met recently on our, uh, the trip to Israel that I helped organize from my home institution here in the UK, Westminster Theological Center, yes. uh, through Mark Turnage's Biblical Expeditions. And uh, you know, our, our group was just blown away by your teachings. So I was really eager to have you on the podcast, and so it's a real privilege to get to talk to you in this format. So um, how did you get into the study of the land of the Bible? That's an interesting story uh, that actually doesn't even start with an emphasis on the land of Israel. Uh, It was in 1982 that my wife and I, we sold everything that we had and moved to Israel. But the focus was uh, I wanted to, uh, I really wanted to learn well um, the the language of Hebrew in all Hmm. its developmental stages from biblical all the way to modern. And so we moved to Jerusalem in 1982. Um, I did a master's degree at, uh, at Jerusalem University College. It was uh, the Institute of Holy Land Studies back in those days. Mm-hmm. And, and it was for that purpose. It was to focus on language. But it was during that program that the curriculum actually required us to study in areas other than just language. And so I studied physical geography with Jim Monson, and Mm -hmm. I did historical geography uh, with Dr. Anson Rainey from the University of Tel Aviv. And uh, being forced into those uh, two um, forms of curriculum, I realized almost out of the gate, just immediately, how important the study of the land of the Bible was to understanding the Bible. Yes, Hebrew is important, and archaeology is important, and uh, history and literature, that all of that is important, but I came to this almost immediate appreciation of mm. the relevance of the land of the Bible almost completely by accident. Hmm. So when you were studying with, with Rainey and Monson, what, what were some of the things that you remember from that kind of Holy Land awakening period that really stuck with you um, all these years since? I remember that we would go on these uh, long field trips that took up whole weekends and sometimes even like a Friday and a Monday before and after the weekend. And we would be I'd be riding down the road and I should have had my eye out the window taking in all of the terrain, the topography, uh, you know, the lay of the land, where the roads were and where the passes were and everything. But I was constantly studying Hebrew because I didn't want to get get behind <laughs> my Hebrew, even though I was in Galilee or I was in the Negev or I was, 
you know, in, in some far off place in the land, in the land. And I remember having to juggle those balls of wanting to take everything in that <laughs> I was being taught by my geography professors, while at the same time keeping up all of my other studies as well. And so um, you didn't grow up a Christian, did you? Uh, I grew up, I was brought up in, in a, uh, a small uh, church, had a nominal uh, commitment. Um, mm-hmm. My kind of rode my parents' coattails mm-hmm. until I was in my teens. And then pretty quickly, because I guess because my commitment was so shallow, I got about as far away from God as I could possibly get, wondering if there even was a God at, at, uh, mm-hmm. at various points to, in my middle to late teens. Mm. And then what was your journey back to the faith? Well, it was sort of, I ran out of dead ends uh, mm-hmm. to um, explore, uh, looking for uh, fulfillment in uh, the party scene or in sports or in um, Eastern religions and that sort of thing. And uh, finally was, I don't know, kind of painted myself into the corner of, okay, God, I know that what my parents believe can't be right because they're not they're not right about anything else, but I'm going to go ahead and I'll give you my, uh, my last best shot. And, um, uh, God came through in amazing ways. Uh, I remember talking to you in Israel and I, I learned an interesting fact about you that you, uh, eventually joined a Christian heavy metal band, right? Yes. Ma- Malachi was it? Yes. So, so tell me about your journey with the, uh, with the heavy metal band. We'll get back to your, your uh, study of the land of the Bible in a moment, but I, I want to hear about this. Yeah, of course. This will be a great comic relief. You can probably find uh, pictures and, and, and maybe even some music online. Who knows what's <laughs> out there? I've, I've never tried. Uh, but um, I was um, in college and um, uh, was playing guitar and got to in some jam sessions with some friends on my floor and that eventually led to the founding of a band and then more members came in and we began traveling uh, quite extensively throughout the southeast of the United States, Uh, Georgia, Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, and I I can't remember, but I guess Tennessee and places, Arkansas Mm -hmm. and places like that. But we just had a wonderful time. We were all in a process of of growing and developing as followers of uh, of Jesus, and uh, the stuff that we uh, experienced together, uh, the kind of ministry mm-hmm. that you know doors that got opened for us, playing, for example, during spring break on a beach in front of literally thousands and thousands, I think about ten thousand different people mm-hmm. um, on uh, on a spring break weekend, and and then in small churches or in uh, the uh, parking lots of um, department stores or grocery stores. It was just all so much fun. And we, we grew by leaps and bounds because on pretty much every front, whether it was, you know, for gas money or because some piece of equipment broke or whatever, we just had to trust God constantly to come through. And it was just a wonderful time of um, personal growth and all of, also of this, you know, tight-knit community growth as mm-hmm. well. And you had a run-in with uh, Leonard Skinner, right? Yeah, we were happened to be playing in the uh, the same town where their airplane crashed. And mm-hmm. uh, after we finished playing that night, 
some people came to, we were playing off the back, uh, back of a flatbed truck and uh, they came and they told us um, about the, the accident. And um, we decided that we would just go over to the, to, to the hospital and, and, you know, get as close as we could. Probably it would be a waiting room and we would pray for these guys and that God would some kind of way do what only he can and to take, you know, what is a, a horrible situation and turn it into good um, and spare life created in his image, et cetera. So mm. we all showed up in the, in the waiting room and, you know, this is back in the day. I mean, you know, we I have no idea how we were dressed, but we all had beards and long hair and, you know, yeah, just had literally just walked off of, you know, a flat, the back of a flatbed truck that was our <laughs> stage. And, uh, so, uh, th there were several nurses around and, you know, when this, you know, group of probably crazy looking, you know, yeah. Sasquatch looking people walked into the waiting room. They said, uh, can we help you guys? <laughs> yeah. So we can finally get, get, like, get you out of here as quick as possible. <laughs> well, we told them who we were and why we were there. And every one of those nurses, they were all Christians. And they said, would you like to go back and pray with the, with the band members? And we said, yeah. And so, <laughs> and this was like right after these guys had had emergency operations and stuff like this. So there were so many of them, you know, when you counted roadies and, and hmm. um, backup singers and, and right. the, the, the band members and stuff that uh, they split us up. And I was the only one going around praying with the people that I prayed for, ended up uh, praying with Leon Wilkerson, who was the bass player. And um, uh, his jaw was wired together and he couldn't talk. He could only gesture and, you know, write some short notes on a, on a, on a notepad. And uh, so I, I, I said, Hey, this is who we are. And this is why we're here. Just want you to know I've you followed your music. Love you guys. You know, we're fellow Southerners, you know, and stuff. And um, I just wanted to, would you like to hear about Jesus? And he shook his head. He moved his head. Yes. Hmm. And uh, so I, I, I shared as much as I, you know, time would permit the, um, the, the good news with him and ask him if uh, I told him, I don't know where you are. I don't know, you know, spiritually where you are. And I don't know if you're going to make it through the night, but would you like for me to pray for you? Do you, you want to, 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 to submit your life to Jesus as Lord? And he shook his head. Yes. Again. So we prayed. And I think after that, he ended up making two or three Christian albums and followed the Lord the rest of his life until he died. That's amazing. Did you ever get to follow up with him personally? You know, uh, our, our, our paths crossed a couple of different times mm -hmm. um, where we were in the same place, but we never got to have like a face to face yeah. again after that. But interestingly, after his death, and after he was replaced by another um, bassist, um, the band continued to travel. And I ended up with, because of a, a strange situation, my, mm -hmm. but my white, my brother was um, uh, the boss of a woman who was the wife of uh, like um, Ronnie Van Zant's, Johnny Van Zant's bro uh, the, the brother. And okay. so we were asked um, if we wanted backstage passes. Right. And I said, of course. <laughs> and so then got to meet all of the guys and they all wanted to hear um, a, the, the story about the transformation of Leon Wilkerson. You know, wow. and what a difference they had that seen made. It. 
they had seen it and mm-hmm. they wanted, you know, we, we know you were involved. Can you just tell us the, the, the rest of the story kind of? And uh, it was awesome because I got to stand backstage and witness to all of these guys and not only Leonard Skinner, but also ZZ Top was backstage as well. <laughs> and so they oh got to, they got to hear, I didn't know. If, you know what was their response? It was, it was almost, well, they were, they were, they had, had, had already drunk and smoked a lot of stuff. And so they were already, you know, kind of in a rock and roll sort of mood, mm-hmm. but they were, Oh, wow. That's heavy, man. Kind of like the way we used to talk back in the seventies. <laughs> oh my goodness. So switching back to our, um, <laughs> our topic of the physical geography of the Bible, what, what's your case for, you know, your argument for why Christians need to understand the physical geography and land of the Bible? So what do we miss when we don't factor that in? Well, uh, I start by basically saying this. The Bible is communication. It's communication between God and us, right? But all communication has context. And uh, without context, you stand to either completely miss or in pieces miss the the main point of that communication. Mm-hmm. And um, so all of these various points, history and and archaeology and culture and religious expressions and ancient literature and all that, all of those are just pieces of the context pie. Mm-hmm. Geography is a piece that I think as Christians we miss most often. And it's really unfortunate because um, uh, physical geography is really easy to learn. It's, it's visual. It, it's mm-hmm. very impacting. It's not like verb tenses or vocabulary that you have to sit around and really cram and study and mm-hmm. grind in. Um, it's so accessible. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems to be the piece that it gets missed um, uh, the most often. I, yeah. I don't know of in the entire 50 states of the United States, I don't know of a college or a Bible college or a university that requires the study of the physical geography of the Bible. Hmm. So the places that are uh, mentioned uh, even the names of roads and what have you hmm. are not he are not English words and they're hard usually hard to pronounce and mm-hmm. so it's it's typically I, I think we as uh, as as Christians are taught by default by accident that mm-hmm. well any part in the Bible that's hard to interpret or doesn't seem immediately relevant or the words are strange you skip to another part that you're more comfortable in mm-hmm. and uh, I think that that's what's happened with the study of the geography of the Bible so then what I do is I follow up um, with people after I've shared that that point about context to say you know a a football game or a monopoly board everything has its playing board and the land of the bible just happens to be the playing board um on which that that whole redemptive drama that you find unfolding in scripture actually was played out and if you if you want to try playing monopoly without the board well good luck with that and it's almost (laughs) about the same with the bible yeah. Yeah. I think um, a lot of people are introduced to the, if if at all, to the physical geography in maybe in university as a map that they have to learn a bunch of place names on. And so it's, it's not terribly exciting if you just have to memorize place names to be able to I reproduce them and identify them well. on a map. 
Yeah. Yeah. We've been turned off by geography, by the way we were introduced to it and studying our own state or our own country or whatever. And so you kind of click and drag that over onto the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I think going to Israel can change that for everyone, because then suddenly those place names on the map become uh, really exciting because they've been there or because they can think about the effect of, um, you know, a, a particular trade route or yeah, the proximity sure. of these two cities in a story. Right. So um, do you have a few favorite sites that you like to take people to? Um, yeah. I mean, I like Galilee is beautiful and it's beautiful almost all the year. Um, further south, like Negev or southern Judah, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of seasonal, you know, the beauty of it, you know, yeah. uh, with grass and flowers and what have you. Yeah. Galilee almost always, but I, I really like... I really enjoy personally uh, Jerusalem more than yeah. any other place. And I think it's because there are just so many significant sites hmm. within walking distance yeah. and yeah. Uh, around every turn, there's some important archeological discovery or museum or something that, uh, that enlightens tons and tons of passages of Bible. Yeah. So I enjoy Jerusalem personally and I enjoy um, giving Jerusalem to people in that mm. meaningful kind of way. Yeah. Now the archaeology and study of Jerusalem is changing all the time. So what are some things that are happening even now that excite you about the study archaeology of Jerusalem? I think maybe um, the introduction of modern technologies, including internet access to new discoveries is, is what is impacting me the most because uh in in generations before ours now, you had to wait for at least a decade and sometimes two and three decades for people to excavate oh, and right. then to multiple seasons excavate and then to complete their excavation. And then there's years in the process of analysis and then writing mm-hmm. and editing and what have you. And by then, I mean, people have had birthdays, they've qualified for social security, they've died and stuff. And you're still waiting for, you know, pictures and explanations of the relevance of these things. And now it's almost immediate um, with uh, uh, the times of Israel and um, uh, Israel Digest and all kinds of different uh, uh, outlets where um, they know who the go-to people are, who's excavating Mm -hmm. where, and you can you can get an article cranked out um, in, in within a week of a, mm. a, a, a really important um, uh, archaeological discovery, and it makes it accessible to everybody. That's yeah. for me. That's probably one of the neatest developments. Mm. It doesn't really have to do with archaeology proper, yeah. but it does have to do with access to uh, the data that archaeologists yeah. are ginning out like on almost every other weekly basis. And is there a particular data that you have your eye on at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm really, I don't know, interested and excited about what's happened with the Temple Mount Sifting Project under uh, Dr. Gabriel Barcai, um, that they have found everything from the uh, Turkish period all the way back to the Canaanite period Hmm. from these 400 dump truck loads that were illegally excavated from underneath the Temple Mount and then just dumped outside of Jerusalem. Students of his found this and they've been going through this bucket by bucket, sifting it through a net 
you know, and wet yeah. sifting with a with a water hose, and they're finding rings, they're finding other kinds of jewelry. They found over a hundred pieces of the f- floor of the temple that Jesus walked on, the King Herod's temple, wow. and been able to reconstruct whole panels of these tightly fitted imported uh, uh, stone. Um, uh, floors with all these beautiful de- geometric designs and that kind of thing. And uh, that, that that's just amazing to me that we actually have part of the floor right. of the temple as it existed in Jesus' day. Now, do you, do you mean the sort of Temple Mount Plaza or do you mean the actual inside of the temple or do we know? Yeah, I think that we're talking about uh, the what we would call the Court of the Gentiles or what sure. the ancient sources called the Great Court or the Outer Court. Yeah, which, by the way, is the place that it seems like when you read the gospel accounts yeah. that Jesus spent most of his time in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, now, getting information about uh, the temple and it was like, you know, a lot of our information comes from Josephus, and I know that's another interest of yours is the study of Josephus and the Mishnah. So maybe just a quick word about how you integrate study of Mishnah and Josephus into your analysis of Judaism in the first century? Well, what I've found is that um, careful students or, you know, students who are interested in the Bible um, don't have any problem taking archaeological artifacts and then using those to enlighten, to, to clarify, maybe even to confirm the biblical record. I find it really interesting that many of those same students will have a, a real suspicion when it comes to literary sources. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure where all of that comes from. It's probably different for each person, but it seems to be a common theme that people have a problem hmm. with the use of whether it's um, between the testaments um, apocryphal or pseudographical material, or whether it's uh, something that uh, is uh, closer to uh, first century like Josephus or like the material from the early rabbis. And what I try to, uh, to do to encourage people to move in that direction is to just, is, is to simply say, archaeologists dig in dirt and people like myself, we dig into literature. And yeah. where they're finding artifacts uh, that are that's buried under the soil, we're finding the, a clearer meaning of words or phrases, or we're understanding where institutions like the Sanhedrin or the synagogue or whatever mm-hmm. began to develop um, by digging into literature. So I view, in a sense, I view myself as a, a literary archaeologist, sure. if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just got done reading uh, The Jewish War with my son, and uh, he's he's 10 and absolutely loved it. That was the most exciting thing. And uh, he had a couple of questions, so I, I thought, oh, I'll ask Wave uh, his question. So he's got a couple of questions for you. This is from Jeremy. So he was wondering, do you think that Josephus is a traitor? Yeah, I'm fascinated by, first of all, you and your son reading war together um, <laughs> as a team. And that yeah. is, that's just, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, he, he, yeah, the constant battles. I mean, it was just so exciting to him. So yeah, really? it's an easy uh, win. Yeah, wouldn't it be great to make like a, you know, a, like a multi-part movie, you know, yeah. out of that, you know, like yeah. Godfather, except uh, History of the Jewish War. Yeah, yeah, we one, did, we did, ha- we, we did have a few questions when the cow gave birth to a goat. Um, 
<laughs> in that one part. But uh, you know, and there there are a few eyebrows raised at points, but um, on the whole, it was it was a fantastic read. So um, you know, there's this situation where at Yodfot he yeah uh, Josephus essentially defects over to the Romans. Right. He said because he had to deliver a message that Vespasian was going to become emperor. Right. Um, convenient, but uh, I'm just curious of your thoughts on whether you think he's a traitor or not. Uh, it's it's still debated today, uh, mm-hmm. e- even within the Jewish community, the modern Jewish community. There are uh, people who view Josephus as a traitor. I think if you go back into the first century and look at it, you're going to have people on both sides of that divide. Mm-hmm. Um, many of his contemporary um, uh, Jewish co-religionists are going to look at Josephus as, yeah, he's a turncoat. You know, mm-hmm. he turned his back on us. He sold out, you know, he's bought and paid for and the like. I think if you ask Josephus, are Josephus, do you you'd feel like you were a traitor? And uh, Josephus would probably say, no, I was probably more like a pragmatist if he was being honest. Mm-hmm. And then if he was being a little bit more idealistic, he would say, look, uh, uh, I saw the complete impossibility of this whole endeavor once I yeah. saw the Roman force arrayed against me. And as I translated it out to, you know, multiple years and sieges and yeah. thousands and thousands of people killed and sold yeah. into slavery, yeah. I thought that I could make a difference. I thought that I might be able to bring yeah. this uh, war to a more peaceful um, uh conclusion that would end up saving life. And so I think that he would paint that picture, whereas mm-hmm. maybe some of his contemporaries would paint a little bit, uh, a considerably different picture. Yeah. Cause I mean, there was a, that part where he even walks around Jerusalem trying to convince people to give up the fight. Um, but obviously it was not very effective. And I think he even got hit on the head with a rock from one of them at one point. Um, uh, Josephus tells us also, though, that a uh, a Jewish king, Agrippa II, who actually shows up uh, in the narrative of the book of Acts, hmm. um, uh, did the same thing. And hmm. he was similarly hit by, uh, with a uh, sling stone on the arm and I think broke his arm or really uh, hurt King Agrippa II quite oh, badly. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, he, he was... N- he was not the only one who was engaged in this kind of activity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was also wondering, so that Josephus estimates probably slightly inflated or maybe highly inflated numbers of like 1.1 million Jews dying in the war. But um, he doesn't mention how many Romans died. And, and Jeremy was wondering, how many Romans do you think died in the war? I would say it would have to be in the thousands. Um, mm-hmm. if not tens of thousands. But yeah. e- uh, even more significant, interestingly, is mm-hmm. the loss of Roman life in the second Jewish revolt, a revolt that in Josephus never lived long enough to either be a part of or, or to write about. Yeah. Um, so, there, yeah. And I think that there's, a, in a sense, a rhetorical reason why he doesn't do uh, give a lot of body count, you know, on the Roman side. Sure. Yeah. And it is because by this time he has become 
an official court historian for the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian being the founder of that dynasty. Yeah. So yeah. as a, as a as a court historian, you know, the, his patrons are these very guys who yeah. conducted the war and you don't want to give your benefactors too much bad press. Yeah, that's clear in the in the in the book. He um, he mentions it at, at certain points, for example, the siege of Gamla that there were lots of Romans who died, but primarily due to uh, the fact that there were um, uh, poorly constructed homes that were caving in on them and they were suffocating from the dust and that sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah, they collapsed and everything. Wouldn't Um, mean that the Jews were killing them, right? No, no, certainly (laughs) not. Um, And then uh, here's two other quick questions. How many soldiers did the Jews have? Do we know that? I've I've never seen any okay. kinds of uh, of estimate, but I think that that could be done pretty yeah. easily by using primarily Josephus as a source. Yeah, yeah, because he does. Maybe kind of... maybe maybe you and your your son could that could be your next Josephus project. Yeah, as we read back through it, we'll keep tallies of all the there numbers because he does tend to give sizes of armies. Um, and then last one was, so we are gearing up in the book, you know, for the big siege of Masada, but it's it's somewhat anticlimactic. I mean, he does go into that, but he doesn't really draw it out like he does Jerusalem. And you get the sense almost that they took Masada very quickly. Um, he, he was wondering, was Masada as easy for Romans to capture as Josephus seems to make it? Wow. Uh, you don't know how much was left out, but um, yeah, Masada, you, ha- you have to keep in mind, that Masada didn't fall until AD 73. Yeah, so, so that ramp. <laughs> the ramp, yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, and it was it was literally years before the Romans decided, hey, we need to go down there and, and finish these guys off at, uh, at, at Masada. The mm-hmm. temple fell, Jerusalem fell in um, AD 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Masada doesn't fall until 73. So the Romans are kind of like sitting around without a whole lot to do. And um, I think that the people in Masada were uh, maybe thumbing their nose, and the Romans may have become at some point afraid that if we allow Macarus and if we allow the Herodian and we allow allow Masada to continue Mm. on, you know, um, as sort of like a, a signal that, you know, Jews are able to withstand, you know, this, you know, great Roman military machine. Um, then that could in and of itself uh, spark another popular revolt. And so Masada is sort of a mop-up operation. And I would say anticlimactic is is a good word Hmm. to describe Hmm. what was going on at Hmm. uh, Masada. Nevertheless, it did take several months for the the Romans to to be able to breach the wall and uh, to take the fortress. All right. Are you um, up for a speed round? Speed round. I'm ready. Okay. Who's your favorite musician? My favorite musician of all time? Yeah. Oh, wow. Probably James Hetfield. He's the um, uh, main lyricist and lead singer of Metallica. Ah, okay. Good. Well, uh, my co-host Drew will be very happy to hear that. Um, Most significant archaeological discovery in the past 50 years? Okay, past 50 years. That's going to take us back to... to 1970. Af- yeah. Um, probably a, a, another Gabriel Barkay uh, first of the Silver Scrolls uh, uh, yeah. that give us, give us our earliest uh, text of the Bible ever. 
that yeah. goes back to the seventh century BC. Yeah, the Ketef predates the predates yeah. the yeah predates the scrolls by about four hundred or so years. Yeah, um, what do you wish you had known when you first got into the study of the Bible? Oh, um, probably how many different disciplines there are hmm. um, within the, stu- the the biblical studies family, hmm. and that uh, at certain points, like when I. Uh, began my master's degrees and then when I did began uh, doctoral studies how I would have to choose not you know two or three of these but I would have to focus on one and at the same time keep my eyes wide open for developments and input from the others sure I guess Uh, the complexity maybe is probably would have been off-putting. It's a good thing I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> so having said that, you're like, well, maybe I'm glad I didn't know. <laughs> I am absolutely glad yeah. I didn't know. Um, now you're an avid bow hunter. Do you have yes. a, a favorite bow hunting story? Um, I think this is one that, that most everybody can appreciate uh, because it's entirely bloodless. Um, I, was, I was hunting by myself one evening uh, and was up in a tree. So I was on a, a, a platform and uh, I began to hear coming through the woods from behind me, what sounded like a fire breathing dragon, no kidding. <laughs> and I, I had no idea how this was going to turn out and was beginning to get pretty concerned because it kept coming directly at me. And uh, by the time it was within, I was estimating 60 or 80 yards, I was almost ready to jump out of the tree. And uh, I'm beginning to unhook my safety um, belt and stuff, get my material together so I could like exit the, the area. And a hot air balloon flew over at no more than about 60 feet. Some, there was some sort of a mechanical malfunction and they were having trouble getting the rockets to fire. Oh, wow. And I could hear the guys talking to one another. And uh, 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 right at the same time that, that that's going on, it scared a deer out of the woods that was just directly behind me, but I didn't know it was there, out into the open. It was a very small deer, and the deer looked up and was totally freaked out in, in the same kind of way that it saw. I'm going, yeah, I, I, I empathize with you, yeah. and it was the deer was too small for me to even want <clears throat> to do anything with, and so yeah. it ran on, uh, trotted on off in the woods <laughs> and decided pr- pretty quickly that that was probably um, my most unique uh, hunt in the woods ever. That's great. A moment of solidarity with the deer. Boy. And it turned out it was fire breathing. Um, Yes, it was. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Wow. Well, I work mostly in um, uh, historical Jesus studies Hmm. and uh, gospels and gospel origins and all of that. And um, the the longer I teach, which is now at the college and seminary graduate level, all the way up to PhD, um, the the thing that I become more and more convinced of uh, the longer that I teach, the more that I learn about that area Hmm. is that... um, I think that we have been barking up the wrong trees for some 200 years on uh, gospel origins and sources behind the gospels and, you know, who wrote first, was it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? And, Hmm. you know, uh, 
and that's that sort of thing. So, Barking, are you able to give it like a ten-second synopsis of which tree we're where we've gone wrong? Well, just to give you an example, the conclusion of the higher um, uh, uh, critical school of New Testament studies is that Mark wrote first because Mark is the shortest, and the ch- the shorter is the more original version of mm. almost everything. Mm. Uh, simply doesn't hold up under the evidence from either modern or ancient literature. I mean, we all know of Reader's Digest version. We all know about Cliff Notes or Spark Notes. Yeah. Um, in the ancient world, we know of Second Maccabees that the writer says, I'm taking the five-volume work of Jason of Serene and I'm condensing it to these 16 chapters. Or of Josephus's Aramaic version that was longer than his later derived Greek version. Or mm-hmm. of um, the uh, Septuagint's version of Jeremiah is shorter than the original Hebrew version of Jeremiah that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, this is where you have to finish the scene. So a penguin wearing a coonskin cap walks into a bar. What does he say? Do you serve penguins here? <laughs> Can you name the uh, location of this graffiti? So, so we're now we're going into first century inscriptions, um, written by someone named Chaos. All right, here we go. And I quote: "I hope your hemorrhoids rub together so much that they hurt worse than they ever have before." Short answer. Yeah. No. Okay, that's from, uh, actually don't know if it's Pompeii or Herculaneum, but it's from one of the two. I can imagine. Uh, I was going to, th- I thought maybe it was some of the um, non-literary papyri, but that was just a yeah. guess. <laughs> um, and this is a, a favorite for um, for next Valentine's Day, I guess, but uh, someone wrote, love dictates what I write and Cupid guides my hand. I would rather die than be a god without you. I like um, that. All right. what's uh, Who's been a mentor to you as a scholar? Well, uh, Ben-Zion Wachholder was my doctor father and guided my final years in my doctoral work and also my dissertation, which was on Dead Sea Scrolls stuff, of which he was a master. And uh, so I would have to say that he probably had as much or more influence on me uh, than anyone else. Um, I could, you know, also give hat tips to people like um, Simon Kistemacher at Reformed Theological Seminary, R.C. Sproul, and Willem von Gehmeren. Hmm. Um, we'll get back to the scrolls in a moment, but uh, one more question. One, you've got one album playing on a desert island on a loop. What is it? Ride the Lightning. All right. Um, uh, maybe, maybe Dark Side of the Moon. Can I get two? Uh, sure. Dark Side dark, of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Got to get a little Pink Floyd in there. Yeah, that's a good choice. Um, okay, so your PhD work was in the scrolls. We're going to uh, wrap this up in just a few moments. But um, I wanted to, you're at Hebrew U, right? Is that where you did I, that? I, I did my doctoral studies at Hebrew Union College. Hebrew Union, okay. Yeah. I um, did study some at Hebrew University when we lived in, in Israel. Um, right, okay. But didn't take a degree from there. Um, and I, I thought it would be really interesting for our listeners if you shared a little bit of your story about your involvement with Marty Abeg and access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and you know, for for some of our listeners, I'm, you know, they might not be familiar with the, the context of that kind of stranglehold that scholars had on access to the scrolls. 
Sure. Uh, during the time when I was in um, my uh, doctoral work at Hebrew Union College and um, was uh, working with um, fellow students like Marty Abeg, uh, who's at Trinity Western University now, and um, I think he's a co-director of the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute there, uh, and uh, Dr. James Bowley. Uh, we um, were all in one way or another working with Dr. Vachholder. Uh, and we were in doctoral seminars with him, as well as working with him as graduate assistants. Um, uh, Marty found himself in a, a situation where he had an approved topic for his dissertation. Uh, I had an approved topic for my dissertation, but m uh, most of the relevant material, f uh, both being on the Dead Sea Scrolls, was was not accessible because it hadn't been published yet. Mm. And so we were in a... Um, and this is uh, years after their discovery. Yeah, this was approximately 40 years after the discovery of the scrolls and uh, and and after the the money donated by um, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller had run out and most of the official scrolls team had gone back to their positions in their uh, schools and other countries and mm -hmm. were taken up with um, teaching classes and you know, training under understudies and the like, and yeah. and this the scroll the official scrolls uh, team was um, had almost work of their work had almost ground to a halt. There was very little being published, mm -hmm. and so um, we knew that uh, we would probably today still be graduate or doctoral students if we if we waited until yeah. those materials did become available through official channels mm -hmm. so we were in a um, we were in a class with dr vachholder and uh, we were supposed to be studying one set of materials in the middle of the class he got an un, um a, 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 an envelope with no return address uh that was a handwritten copy of what ended up we ended up finding out was a text called 4QMMT, which was the founding foundational document of the sect. Mm. And um, we began, we made that our immediate um, study, um, subject of study instead of whatever it was that we were doing before and found pretty quickly that there were lots of words in that Hebrew document that were not uh, covered either in Old Testament um, dictionaries, what we call lexicons, mm -hmm. and weren't in um, some of the already existing lexical works uh, like K.G. Kuhn's work for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And so um, we were approaching Dr. Vacholder after class one day. The three of us were standing around. Everybody else had left. And he said, well, he said, boys, you know that there's that there's this handwritten concordance, multi-volume, like 10, 12 volumes down in uh, the um, uh, in the limited access area of the library. And we said, no, we didn't know that. And so he said, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you could probably access that, look at where these words show up in other places in the scrolls, and mm -hmm. then maybe you would better understand, you know, this word that you're struggling with here or there. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, how do we get access to that? And he said, well, all we have to do, all I have to do is write you a letter mm -hmm. because uh, John Strugnell committed those, those volumes into my care. So I, I'm the one who, I'm the bottleneck. So mm -hmm. would you write the letter? He said, of course. So he writes out the letter. 
we went down there. And I, as I recall, it was, it was Marty and I, we walked into this cage that had to be opened with a key mm-hmm. and pulled the first couple of, couple of volumes off and opened them up. And lo and behold, it, it wasn't just um, a word in isolation, you know, like listed in alphabetical order. It was keyword in context, meaning you had that word plus a few words on either side of that word. So it's wow. giving you to some degree context. Plus, if you looked up the last word in the line, you could keep on following that, you know, like yeah. jumping. So you jumping can piece together the, the scroll itself. Piece piece together the whole the whole scroll. And so that's exactly what we did using a little tiny um, personal Mac computer that you could carry around all in one hand. There were no laptops back in those days, but so everything, you know, the the motherboard, the, the hard mm-hmm. drive, the, the monitor, every bit of it, everything was all in this thing you yeah. carried around by a handle. And Marty had one of those. And so we started typing in texts mm. and the rest is history. That's amazing. So that, that sort of broke the stranglehold then on led the to, scrolls. Uh, yeah, led to publications by the Biblical Archaeology Society. And when the first volume came out, um, uh, it uh, did, as as it were, hit the fan, and uh, everybody knew the cat was out of the bag. Yeah. The Huntington Library in California then released their photographs for mm. anybody, you know, who was a reputable scholar to study. And um, soon after that, the, the Biblical Archaeology Society produced that two-volume folio-sized set of the, mm. of the photographs of the scrolls in their entirety. Wow. Wow. Um, well, uh, Wave, uh, we're coming to the end here, and I just thought it'd be helpful if you summarize, like, what it is that you want Christians to take from your life's work, you know, focusing on the land and the study of early Judaism and the land of the world of the Bible. What is it that you want Christians to take away? I'm hoping that, you know, with my students and those that read what I have written and and who study with me in the land of Israel, I, I hope that they are uh, able to understand that uh, that Christianity is is not has philosophical components, but it's not a philosophy. It's not about speculation. It's it's about tangible, observable reality, and that uh, all of these materials that are available to us, whether it's geography or archaeology or literature or whatever, that this is all a part of this beautiful, um, very uh, textured highly contextualized um, uh, divine revelation that God has given us to guide us uh, our seeking of him. And that, you know, when the prophet says seeking while he can be found, you know, and uh, the new Testament says, draw near to him and he'll draw near to you, that that pathway is open and it's available. And it's not one that's fraught with incredible, you know, uh, uh, difficulty in terms of understanding it. And it's not something that is just, it's, that, that is some kind of mystical revelation, but it's, it's something that it's a, a God who is real seeking a people who are very flawed, but very real. And, and, uh, and with a, with his word to guide us, which is very, very, very in your face real. Hmm. And I hope that with my life's work, both the, the, the teaching and the writing that um, some kind of way um, lots of people will have been helped in that journey um, toward God through his word. 
Yeah. Well, Wade, thank you so much. And where can people find out about the work that you're doing through Bible Unplugged? Well, uh, you can um, get to Bible Unplugged really easily through um, www.wavenunley.com. And it's just W-A-V-E-N-U-N-N-A-L-L-Y. A long name, little guy. Uh, I don't know how that worked out all these years, but yeah, it's 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 pretty simple. <laughs> you can also, you know, Google my name um, mm-hmm. and come up with a whole bunch of different articles and different places on the uh, internet. I've also got a, a, a gigantic archive of both audio and video um, podcasts at centralfaithbuilders.com. That's all one word. Great. Centralfaithbuilders.com. And uh, that's all, all of the stuff that I'm referring to. It's free access. There's not any kind of a login or subscription rate or anything like that. So if that ends up being of help to someone in yeah. their journey, I, I, that, that will be very fulfilling for me. Yeah, and we'll put links to those on our website. And your, awesome. um, your Bible Unplugged is, is a means through which people can go to the land, but also get preliminary teachings and then follow-up uh, yeah. as well. Yes, exactly. Uh, what we've done with Bible Unplugged, our own company, is that we've put together a, a, a holistic curriculum that gives people uh, pre-trip kind of orientation and preparation so that they can maximize their learning potential while they're there. And then we follow up with teachers and pastors afterward to help them integrate what they've learned and what the kind of materials that they've collected as videos and photos and, and, and uh, site location, site notes and that sort of thing uh, into their, uh, their sermons and into their uh, class notes and what have you. So great. Well, Wade, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure, Dr. Matt. It was a blessing getting to uh, visit with you again. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.